0: welcome back everybody super pumped about today's show i'm louis my buddy jason joins me as usual how you doing
1: i'm doing fantastic
0: good uh today's guest is somebody who is involved with the marley woods project which is very similar to skinwalker ranch we're talking crazy things like cryptids and bigfoots and ufos and orbs and all the rest he's also the uh, host and one of the cast members of the newest tv show ufo witness so we asked him about that as well today i'm super pumped let's get right into this All right, welcome back to another episode of UAP Studies Podcast. I'm Louis Borges. Joining me, as always, my good friend and co-host Jason Gilmet. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing very good. How are you? I'm doing really good. Uh, we decided to don some blazers today, kind of spice it up a little bit. We got a fancy new video reel with our uh, our intro, so we're pumped about that, and uh, very pumped about our guest today. Uh, this gentleman's appeared on Coast to Coast. He's a bit on television. Uh, You know, he's a MUFON member. He is the director of the Ted Phillips Marley Woods Research Center. Uh, He's a professional diver and all kinds of cool stuff like that. And we're super happy to have him on the show. So without further ado, please welcome Mr. Thomas Ferrario to UAP Studies. Hello, glad to be here. Glad to have you. Yeah. And uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, who you were before you got into all this, and uh, kind of what led you uh, to where you are now and what you're currently working on.
2: Well, I'll, I'll just tell you, it's a long story and I'll just cut it short, but I've been in ufology basically all my life through family, some had personal experiences, and I grew up in a small town, rural community. Uh, and believe me, people have witnesses and I've seen witnesses that had, you know, reported things and didn't even want to share things with their family. And I've seen people lose their employment over it. So I learned at an early age, it's a very serious subject, and uh, Actually, I got in touch on a Sunday afternoon with Walt Andrus, one of the co-founders of the Mutual UFO Network, which actually, people don't know this, but that was actually the Missouri UFO Network in the beginning, and then it approached international and became the Mutual. But on about a four-hour call with Walt, uh, I had some actual cases that he knew overlapped in Project Blue Book, and he convinced me to be a member. And he actually made me a section director at that point, and introduced me to a gentleman named Bruce Whitteman, which Bruce Whitteman was in St. Louis, Missouri, was the first state director for MUFON in Missouri, and uh, he was there in the beginning of MUFON. And uh, John Schuessler was there, and but anyway, I hooked up with Bruce, and I told Bruce, I said, "Well, Walt made me a section director at the time," and and Bruce said, well, you can't be, I make the section directors, and at the time, you're not even a MUFON member, so he said, we'll get together, and talk about it, and see what we can do, and so he brought me in, and uh, he assigned me to a gentleman named Jim Cross, which was an Air Force captain, retired from the Korean War, and so I worked under Jim Cross, was my formal training, in going out investigations with him, he was a photo analyst, and uh so I had good training, and Bruce and I became great friends. And which we just recently lost, Bruce Witteman a couple months ago this year. Oh. And um, great loss to Missouri and MUFON. But so anyway, that's how I got involved with in ufology and in MUFON. And through Bruce Whitman and the MUFON meetings, I got to meet my all-time mentor, uh, Ted Phillips. And I got I offered him. Not even thinking in a million years he'd take me up on it. I offered Ted my services and Ted said, Well, what do you got? And I said, Well, at the time I was an electrical engineer, uh, did work as an electrical engineer, nothing uh, really formatted um, in that degree, but I signed, I was working for a power boat company at that time. Um, And so, anyway, I started as a just a mutual beneficial. I put up cameras, security cameras, ran wires for Ted out at Marley Woods, and we became close friends over the years. And And that's, that's my story, basically. So tell us
0: a little bit about Marley Woods. I know this may not be as well known as some of the other uh, locations in the world. So what is Marley Woods and what is the significance to ufology in our field?
2: Yeah, Marley Woods, and that I'll go you know, right off the bat is a fictitious name. We had to do that to protect the location and the the eyewitnesses. And we do have over 260 witnesses now logged in cases in that area. But it's a three-mile area north and south in the east and west. So one ranch alone is comprised of over 1,200 acres. So you can see the small team we had. It was quite a bit of real estate to maneuver when things would start happening out there. And luckily, we had great property owners. One property owner built Ted Phillips a research center out there, a two-story structure for us to stay in, and had our Ted had his office and uh, built us an observation deck. And uh, so it was just uh, we couldn't have had better people to work with there. But but it's at it play Marley Woods is a location that has now I can say that with some authority because I was so fortunate. Uh, here again because of Ted, Uh, Jacques Vallée was a good friend of Ted and worked with Ted over the years. And and Ted got his start, you know, with Dr. Alan Hynek in Blue Book days. And you had actually Jacques Vallée on one side doing the software in the, the journals. And Ted was the field guy. He loved to be the man doing the nuts and bolts work out in the field. He was a true scientist collecting data, doing compaction tests he found out that these objects 30 to 60 foot diameter weighed anywhere from 20 to 60 ton. So, you know, when you're dealing with that kind of mass, that's the science you can put your teeth into. So, but as a result of that, Ted's friendship with Jacques Vallée, and of course Jacques Vallée, you know, wrote the book about Skinwalker contributed in and he's Jacques spent time with us out in Marley. So it doesn't get any better than that, let me tell you. And so is it
0: is it similar to Skinwalker Ranch where it's multiple phenomena, not just UFO, there's lights and portals and cryptids and all kinds of crazy stuff?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's multiple. And I will tell you that Jock Valet himself said that then skinwalker. Now say that
0: say that one more time. You're a connection cut out there, Tom. Say that part he said, one. He Sorry. said that
2: um, Marley Woods has a higher potential for high strangeness than Skinwalker. Now, that's saying quite a bit.
0: Right. Yeah, definitely. And well, do you but, think there's a reason why the Skinwalker Ranch kind of took off more in terms of people knowing about it? Was it like the Robert Bigelow or the now the television shows associated? Like, why is Marley Woods not as well known as some of the other?
2: Well, kids? you know, that's due to Ted's work trying to keep the location secret and the witnesses and I can actually go into it now and talk about it. At the time, we couldn't, but we were affiliated and we had Robert, Robert Bigelow out there and his people. So for a while, we worked with him. Yeah. And it was just a, it was a mutual, let's just say with discrepancy of property control and, and data. Um, I'll just, I won't go any farther than that, but we did work with him at a time. And um, all I can tell you is that, you know, Ted's method was going in with as small a footprint as possible, monitoring this stuff. And uh, we're there to, to log data and monitor things and try to figure out what this phenomena is. Where in the beginning, the Bigelow people went in with a huge footprint, uh, several mobile scientific units, several people, and it shut the activity down there for years. And eventually it came back up. Now, the new people there, and I happen to know the producer and some of the people there at Skinwalker, and they're doing it in a much better way, a more scientific approach and a more smaller footprint type of method that Ted used. And they're getting more activity like that now. But do they have similarities
0: with like disturbing the ground and things like that? Is there anything similar? Uh,
2: Not so much in us disturbing the ground out there, but I will tell you that They're coming around at at Skinwalker now. One of the things that we felt was truly what affected people, and there were instances that we had, uh, myself included, we had health issues, health problems, happened to myself and Ted and other members of the team. And we just nailed down, because of Ted's work in the past, uh, that it was all microwave-based. And now they're coming around at Skinwalker, I will tell you, and they're coming around to that conclusion more and more that a lot of the bad guy is the microwave radiation. And, you know, that's so in the news now you've heard about the Havana syndrome. um, Hashimoto's. Very, very real thing. You know, it's when humans are exposed to certain microwave frequencies, they hear audible clicks. It affects their health and it just they hear voices, you know, that aren't there. and. So it's we just nailed down that most of our damage to animals and the bad guy in Marley, just like they're finding out at Skinwalker, is due to microwave radiation. And believe me, we've had cattle mutilations in Marley. Uh, We've had a horse barn incident, which is our most famous terrible incident. Uh, We've had light balls. We've had the unseen force. We've had cryptids, huge white sloth-like type animals. The only Bigfoot sighting in the county was in Marley Woods. Uh, So when this phenomena is there, it's there and it's real. Now, it leaves down. We've got physical trace. I mean, we've got, we collected 16-inch white long hair samples that we did microscopy on and DNA work, pretty crude in the day, DNA work, but it came back, no known match. We got plaster casts. So it goes on and on from there, and uh, it's just incredible. It really is,
1: right. And what is there a reason why they're keeping it secret, like this location?
2: It yeah. uh, Ted always felt the ranchers, of course, they don't want an influx of people on their property. Okay, and and one of the things, contrary to popular belief, you know, over the 200 witnesses we have, none of them have ever wanted to go public. Some of them won't even. Share this with their family members again. So there's no financial gain. There's no reason on earth why this stuff would be made up or be fictitious. Um, And believe me, they're just a salt of the earth people. They're real. And but they want, Ted always agreed we would keep their location, you know, and their personal data, everything 100% safe. So we felt, Ted felt he owed it to all these people. And I, I'm following up on that. I'm, I'm, And believe me, it is so hard. We have so many people over the years, uh, some that don't think think they know the location and they don't, and some that find their way onto the property. So I would just say at this point, uh, please, one of the property owners, nephew is actually a deputy sheriff. They've taken his private property. You'll be trespassing if you get out there you can't get to the where most of the occurrences happen. You can't, it's, it's gated, it's fenced off. You can't get to the locations. So uh it really won't do you any good to try to get on this property. So, you know, respect these people's wishes. And I know myself, I know everybody'd like to be there and, and observe this stuff. And, and we're, that was always Ted's wish. We're hoping in the future with the, The new technologies out there, uh, cell cameras, cell type trail cameras. And we've even looked in because to this day, the Internet is not really prevalent out there. So we're even looking into satellite phone operated uh, trail cams. And but you can imagine the cost, how prohibitive that is. But we want to get a website back up and have this stuff viewed 24 hours a day. That anybody can go to this and and you know they can help us out. They can view through these cameras and monitor this stuff. And if they see anything, they can log it, time it, and uh and so that's the way we'd like to bring people into Marley Woods and be beneficial to everybody. What do
0: you think it is? Do you think there's something buried there? Do you think it's uh environmental anomaly that makes it a hot spot? Like, what do you think is actually causing this phenomenon?
2: You know, I wished I could tell you, but I will. The one thing I can absolutely say, and I know this steps on a lot of ufologists' toes here, but I can only go with the people I've known, like a gentleman. now, I don't know if you've heard of Ray Stanford. just a good friend of mine. Um, he wrote the book, Saucer in the Pentagon's Closet. Um, he's a self-taught paleontologist. He worked in back engineering. In ufology, on craft debris, Um, you know Jacques Vallée, Ted Phillips, and um, Alan Hynek. But I will tell you, and Jacques put it the best way I've ever heard. He said that we have evidence that the phenomena has the ability to create a distortion of the sense of reality to substitute artificial sensations for the real ones. Now, what that means is that this phenomena is dimensionally based, it's frequency driven, it has the ability to change your perception of reality or what you're visually seeing. Now, that doesn't mean something's not there, it very much is there, and we found that out. But we do believe this has the ability of sometimes what you're seeing, whether it be cryptids, Or, you know, like Ted used to say, the little gray guys or whatever type of perceived alien it is. You always have to keep in the back of your mind that is this really something physical or is this something that I'm seeing? Am I seeing what it wants me to perceive and see? Uh, And so often with cryptids out there, you know, and when this stuff comes dimensionally based through the dimensional boundaries, It's as real as you and I lays down physical trace. We've we've found it. We've seen it. But when it's not there, it's not there. And do we believe there's a living breeding population of large, white, sloth-like, 400-pound animals breeding at Marley? We absolutely know there isn't. But when this stuff comes through the dimensional boundaries, which seem to be weakening, I will tell you, that's why you're seeing it in more locations like Marley around the world right now. It's as real as you and I are, but but we always were taught by people like Jock and Heineck, and like Ted said, Heineck always said, Ted, this is so much more than a little green guy coming here from Alpha Centauri. That's too simplistic. This stuff is all dimensionally based. And when it comes through, it's interdimensional. It's not interplanetary. Now, there's a difference there I will go into that meaning it's interdimensional through that aspect, it can be interplanetary, but, but did all the great names in ufology that I've met. And i if I have to put my money in anybody, I'll put it on these people. Uh, I'll put it on their, what they've come away with. And that just the physics and everything coming from light years away is really impossible. Uh, dimensionally based coming through that aspect of it it is possible so um, and that being said that I will tell you I that angers a lot of ufologists and they don't want to they don't want to hear that
1: well we've covered uh, several different aspects like we also cover the extra um, tempestrial models and like but the, the ones from an, another dimension, we haven't covered that as much. Uh, we obviously talked um, about Skinwalker Ranch. Some weird stuff happened there, and it looks like it's interdimensional. Like People are mentioning portals and stuff like that. It, did anybody report portals in that area as well?
2: Yes, uh, yeah. we absolutely Ted has taken imagery and got torn them apart. And when you get into what we call the one, the light mass, it was in the northern ranch, usually. Territory acreage. Uh, he actually pulled this through high magnification, and I have imagery of it looks absolutely like a doorway or portal. And and Ted always said here at this aspect, he said, he said Tom, in my early days when I was a nuts and bolts man, if I would have said portal, I wish you would have just smacked me. But he said he's he came to believe exactly what Alan thought and Jock and so many that this stuff is dimensionally based and their portals open up at precise times and this stuff comes in and out. And we found them to be very directional, which it was a key in understanding how you can have one person be in one location. You, you hear this so often, one person sees a disc or you know, a cryptid, people standing on either side of them see nothing. And we experienced that exactly in Marley. Um, this stuff. When this light source opened, which was a portal, uh, we seen this from site two, actually where our office was, with the property owner. 10, and I got in my vehicle. We drove over to site one, where this was, and where we knew the location was. We got there in my vehicle. Got out of my vehicle. We looked around, didn't see anything, and the property owner. We were on walkie talkies. Um, the property owner said. When I got back in my vehicle, I accidentally stepped on my brake light or my brake. He seen my tail light. My brake lights came on, and he said, "You guys are right next to the light source." Now that was very, you know, informative to us because we got back out. We we could see no no nothing of this light source. I mean, nothing. Absolutely nothing.
1: So if the property you, only. Sorry, sir. So you could see it from a distance. Right. If you were in close proximity to it, you could not see it.
2: Right. We okay. weren't from that vantage point. And he could see my tail lights, my backup lights, our brake lights coming on right next to the light source. Wow. And we seen no artifact of it whatsoever. So how do you explain that except we learn it's very directional? And uh, so the high strangeness in Marley goes on and on. Three generations there that we know of, we tried to get some Native American input in it, but there is none there. And we just recently found out in the last five years, at the one spring, there was actually a large Native um, encampment there um, at one time, hundreds of years ago. So, but that was the first time we found evidence of Native Americans. Okay. But there aren't, there's no presence there, so we don't know how far it goes back. But but we suspect it goes back into the Native American culture. And uh, but it's just an incredible place. And um uh, and why it's there, and you know what well, sets us apart from any other location like Skinwalker, we have no idea. Uh, and it drove Ted crazy. Sure. We explored caves, we went through uh, you know, property owners said they thought they seen the light bulbs going in and out of the caves, and uh we just, we some caves in close proximity to Marley. Uh, we feel that there's large cave complexes could have went under Marley, but we never found anything in these caves. Uh, so
0: there is that. And similar to Skinwalker Ranch too, with the Navajo legends, and it tells you that this has been going on a long time. If this has already made its way into, into the folklore of a culture, it's not just something new. And it's something they felt profound enough to put in the record so that future generations would be educated about it. So um right. you know, and do you know of any other places uh in the US that have this type of phenomenon other than Marley Woods and Skinwalker? Do you know of any others?
2: You know, I, I'm being aware, actually, there's another place in Missouri I'm being aware of. Um uh a great state director, which is a great friend of mine. I call her my sister, uh Debbie Zigglemeyer. I don't know if you've yeah. heard that name. Yep. Yep. Uh, Debbie is a great guy. We actually, her and I started, co-founded the MUFON dive team, uh, which John Schuessler sanctioned. And back in the day, we had that in 2007. And we did some amazing things. But Debbie's the state director of MUFON now in Missouri. And she's making me aware there's another location she's come across uh, approaching the high strangeness now of Marley Woods. So I do believe this is becoming more prevalent and around and she's heard of other locations now in the United States and some international locations. So for whatever reason, I think that uh, maybe the dimensional boundaries are weakening and uh, and that gets into another whole nother uh, section of reality. But all I can say is that it is happening more and more.
0: And think of how many places nobody has been. Or yes. they're so remote that it's dangerous to even try to get there, you know? Right. There's legends of like Grand Canyon related things and hidden yes. caves and artifacts that shouldn't be there. So,
2: yes. as
0: populated as we think we are, there's still most of it that is unexplored. So, my guess is that this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this sort of thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, I really believe that, you know? And, and it, I will tell you that even when Ted and our team, uh, we retraced, we went to the Socorro case with Lonnie Zamoros. We yep. had the great privilege. Ted felt there was some work undone with that case. And he wanted to make a return case. And, and Ted was there with Alan Hynek in that case. And uh, so, I mean, and Ray Stanford was there with him. And uh, and we had the privilege of going over that exact in the location. That, and actually, we still found the, the ring, the rock that they had put earlier around one of the foot pads in the desert there. So, uh, but on the way out there, we were made. We were made aware from another individual of an area similar to Marley Woods, and we we wanted to get back there and investigate this, and we never got back there. But but we were made of another place in New Mexico, like Marley mm-hmm. Woods. So it just
0: you know how it's many
2: how many are out there,
1: yeah. <laughs> right? And. So far, we know of them a lot from the United States, but there's got to be other locations on the planet that this has also taken uh, place, right? That just these weird... I don't know if anywhere in Canada uh, that has anything it's similar to so vast to
0: and remote. I mean, most of right? the country up north towards the Arctic. I suspect in- there is. Yeah, yeah I, it's, there is. I mean, there's plenty of cryptid and Bigfoot and all the rest sightings on the Pacific Northwest where we live, right? Right, right from Oregon north, so... My my thing that my brain gets stuck on, is it is it the terrain that's causing this? Like, why do they seem to have clusters? If it was just something that was dimensional-based, something's passing through, it could happen anywhere. It could happen over the middle of the ocean as far as they're concerned. Right. Right? But it is, I, I'm always confused of, is it the land? Is there some magnetism in the rocks? Is there some energy? Maybe is there like a, a ship that's crashed or something and that's emitting... Um, you know radiation or you know and the more you try to pin it down the stranger it becomes and the harder it is to really get anything you know
2: yeah and we tried to it drove him crazy you know he he tried to look at it from geologically and uh, the topography what and he just never could come up with anything that set it apart yeah and even the ranchers couldn't come up with that but i mean they dealt with cattle mutilation uh and uh, the most and grat- you know, that's where the typical cattle mutilation, exactly like you hear. Right. I've, I've got a good friend, Chris O'Brien, and uh, it's similar to a lot of Chris's work that we did. And uh, and then our horse barn incident, you know, this horse. And I don't know if you heard of that, but that was one of the most graphic.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, could you elaborate on that story?
2: Yeah, I will briefly. And, okay. and I usually warn people at this point, it gets very graphic. Um, but basically, what that just I'll cut it down, now, but basically, what that entailed was a rancher had a favorite on site two, had a favorite horse in a barn, and it, he had a habit in the morning of going down into the barn, giving his horse some sugar, checking on the horse, and he walked the fence line. Now, this particular morning, he did that and he walked the fence line. He was within sight of the barn. Uh, the whole time, about three quarters of a mile away, uh, heard absolutely no sound, no wind, no weather. Um, on the way back to the house, he noticed that the gate was ajar on the barn, and he knew he didn't do that. As he goes in the barn, what he finds, like he described, was just like a slaughterhouse. house. Um, he finds this horse in basically, in like it exploded. He finds chunks of horse flesh on the rafters, on the sides, blood all over. Just what had been a perfectly good horse, right. just within a third, half an hour, had literally blown up. Now, unfortunately, we wanted always wanted a full-time presence there, Marley. We got back, it was almost seven weeks before we could get back after this happened. We took blood samples, soil samples. We found no anomalies, no explosives, nothing like that. And Ted getting back with people he knew, and he had actually overseas because Ted had so many. And a lot of people don't know this, but when Alan Hynek had prior engagements or was in bad health, Ted filled in for Alan worldwide. He in lot several I think it was thirteen different countries, and Ted had come across this similar things like this, and they had there again. They had nailed down that this was microwave in origin. And as Ted said, that the way the rancher expressed it and what we seen, it was as if this horse had been put in a microwave oven and exploded, but absolutely no noise, no sound. And so, what does this, you know? Yeah, it, like a pizza. It makes pot. no <laughs> sense, and why? Yeah, you know? uh,
0: it's almost like the horse was in the wrong spot. There was a burst of energy there. It happened to be within him, and science right. took over, and that was it. Right. That's nuts. Now-
2: do we think it was done out of a malicious act or was it just the artifact of it being in the technology of this phenomenon at the precise moment? Yeah. You know, we don't know uh, it we think possibly it's a little bit of both. And I will tell you that the phenomena, we felt it and seen it ourselves. It used fear as a tool and it would work people with fear. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a very graphic representation to go at length, to go to, to work people, but, but I will tell you, it did. I mean, the, the rancher, the neighbors, everybody was terrified by this, you know, as you can imagine. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah when we interviewed George Knapp and uh, Colin Kelleher, they mentioned uh, the hitchhiker effect, you yes. know, which was yeah. like long lasting physical conditions, even weird poltergeist stuff that start happening at their own personal houses. So it yeah. seemed like <clears throat> either they had angered this somehow or just by being in its presence it now latched onto their energy and they took it home with their families and everything else and uh yeah it was a very real thing for them so much to the point where when we asked them about it they you know they usually tell us everything and they were like i don't want to get into it because it's probably so bizarre <clears throat> they're still worried people are going to think that they're crazy just based on what they saw and experienced so Well, Uh, you know, did you experience I know you mentioned that you had some things happen on that location, but did you ever take anything home with you as well? Similar to a hitchhiker
2: effect? You know, not so much as the hitchhiker. We've been very fortunate. Uh, Now, Ted did have one experience. He felt maybe a little bit of that occurred. I myself was fortunate. I have never felt that or thought that that I brought anything home in that respect. But I did bring home, let me just tell you, uh, and we just filmed the UFO Witness show, and they did a recreation in that, what happened to Ted and I in that show. But but Ted and I, one night, we were coming back on it, and you're, you're on a dirt road, off a gravel road, off a pay road. I mean, you're in 1,200 acres in the middle of block-gated community, so nothing in there, nothing out. And uh, we were coming back after a long night, and... I noticed in my rearview mirror a light beam. And this is another phenomena that the ranchers have all experienced out there. And my friend Adam Johnson, which was a team member, he went on. He's a producer now and does great work, uh, made a couple of movies. He's a great guy. But at the time, he was just a team member with us. And uh, him and I experienced a light beam. And one night coming home with Ted and I was in my vehicle. I seen this thing coming up the, the road behind us. It overtook our vehicle and illuminated our vehicle with a pure white light. I mean, you could see in the the vents in the dashboard, I remember. And Ted and I, I said to Ted, are you seeing this? And Ted said, looked at me and he said, well, hell yes, I'm seeing this, Tom. Instinctively, we did a probably not wise thing. We both jumped out of the vehicle on each side and we looked up in the sky and what we've seen, and I know a little bit of lighting, and I don't know how you'd recreate this effect. We've seen the light beam came off us. You could see a definite end of the light beam as if it was a wall, retract in a more like an old camera, like a reflex twisting motion. Now, that's the only thing on the show they did. They elaborated on a little bit. This this light beam we've seen retract into a, a circular Uh, reflex action to a pinpoint and was out. Now we did not see a structured craft. We seen nothing. We heard nothing. We felt no wind. What this was, we have no idea. But when we got back to on site, one where we had our office, uh, Ted got out of the vehicle at that time and he was a professional photographer too. Also out, out He dropped his cameras on the ground and he went over and leaned on the wall and actually I seen him. He got sick. He actually vomited. And he's, I said, Ted, are you okay? And he said, well, I don't know. I Let me just stand here a while and see. So he stood there a while and, and he said, I'm going to go up, upstairs and lay down. And he went. And So anyway, at that point, I thought, well, I was fortunate. I didn't have that effect. In hindsight, I wished I had that effect because about a week later, we went home. I left. I got home. I started having a severe burning sensation in my scalp. I couldn't touch my head. And my local doctor, he thought I had shingles. He gave me tests for shingles. It wasn't shingles. I was even on pretty strong opiates for the pain for about a week. Uh, And then this sounds really strange, but I had dark brown hair. And if you look on my, uh, my YouTube channel, I've actually documented all this. I have a picture before and after the same haircut, same growth within about a month. Uh, My my hair color turned from dark brown to what you see today, white or yellow. Uh, Now, had that been the extent of my damages, I would have been happy. I started having vision problems for the next couple of years. I went in to the local eye doctor. They said I had something called a macular cyst. Now, that's something worse than cataracts you can have a extremely, it's a touchy operation. They use a laser. Um, you have extremely good benefit from that, or you have bad. I was lucky. I was fortunate. I had good response from that, but they removed uh, the cyst behind my eye macular cyst. Then they remove cataracts. And, you know, I asked them what causes this and they said, well, usually macular cyst, something you see in old people. And I wasn't old then. Um, they said it's just something we don't we in age we don't even know what causes it, but uh, it's just something you get. So they really didn't have an answer. So on my final visit back of my surgery, when they took the bubble off, and uh, there was a young eye doctor there that um, did the final test, eye test, and took this off and gave me the okay. And just in passing, and I was so thankful. I asked this. I said, "What causes? You know, do you know what causes macular cyst?" And he said, "No, of course we really don't." But he said, the only time I've ever seen it, he said in my life, he said, was we had two cell tower workers, and one of the cell tower workers was up on this microwave tower and they fired this thing up and they didn't, they forgot he wasn't off the tower. And he said he had macular cyst. Now, when when he told me that, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Because that's so when he mentioned the name, the word microwave, uh There again, that backed up what Ted had experienced in our line of thought at Marley. So I warn people, you know, when you go out and view this stuff, as they find out in Skinwalker, I'm sure you see what effects they're having out there now. uh, It's nothing to mess around with. And, you know, I will just tell you here, uh, I devoted, I always said, if I take people back on Marley, I will have I will protect them and know if we're exposed to microwave energy. Right. So I brought uh, bought a uh, new piece of equipment just devoted to microwave energy spectrum. And I had that with us on the show. And three times that evening, on uh, one of the evenings out there, in the middle of a field, no power lines, nothing around. It had uh, visual cues and audible cues, you know, green, yellow, red, and the audible cues with it. If, you, if it goes red and you get that, that audible cue, you better be getting out of there because it's something, you're in an area, you better not be in there too long. Three times that night, we experienced that out there. So, and I, like I told the, the individuals out there that night, I really felt it was just short duration, but I really felt like it was a sign letting me know that it it was monitoring us, it knew we were out there, and it was a sign to me that it was still very much there. So, um, and you know, crazy. how do you explain that? Yeah. And did they
1: ever figure out what that, uh, spot in the back of your head was like, was it radiation? Was it uh, microwave
2: burns? You know, it, the, the only thing they told me, my local, of course, the rural doctor, um, all they tested me for was of course, you know, shingles. They thought he just said, you probably got some kind of a sunburn or something. And which didn't make sense. So no, they didn't go anymore. I wish we would have at that time. But but the interesting thing was Ted and I shared this with a property owner about us experience the light beam, which they had experienced. We didn't want to go into the physical effects that much. We didn't want to worry them. You know, you're out there. They're gracious enough. You're on their property. We didn't want to worry them. You know, we get injured. And this was the farthest thing from our mind or Ted's that we would never come back on a property on. But we didn't want to give them the thought. Are they going to sue us? You know, or it's right. whatever
1: the liability. Well,
2: yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. And and here's where I always tell people, always share. We weren't completely honest with them. We didn't mention that effect. And you know, years after Ted passed, I was speaking with the property owner at Site One, and I felt I just had to mention it to him. And the property owner again, you could have knocked me over with a feather because uh, he said he experienced the light beam, which is a strong light beam they describe coming down like it's in a honey motion going across the field, the timber. Uh, And it came up to them several times. And the property owner told me when I told him about my scalp being burned or sore. And he said, well, I had that several times, Tom. And I said, you what? (laughs) He said, I said, you never said that. And he said, well, you never told us told me either that you had that experience that so had we known that and shared that with the man at the time you know and got that input like Ted always had to have we had to prove things have three witnesses and prove things three times before Ted would document it so that would have gone a long way in confirming what we experienced Uh, but it happens you know and and they're having this now at skinwalker you know
1: yeah so you say you didn't see a structure or anything like that behind the light but did did it look like there possibly could have just been something that's hidden behind that like you how know, did there-
2: it very much could have been cloaked uh this thing retracted like I said you know with a twisting reflex motion into a pinpoint and then it was just gone right um uh, we didn't see a craft now that's not to say there wasn't. Um, now the time with Adam Johnson and I, you know, we were in a deer stand filming, and Adam had great camera equipment for the day. And we were up there like four hours in, oh, I think it got down to like 16 degrees. And so if you've ever spent, you know, that amount of time in that type of temperature, we were just frozen and it was like two in the morning, three in the morning, and we were closing up. And that's the other thing, this phenomena, as Ted said. It has an intelligence to it. It always knows your weakest moments. And when you're not prepared, that's when this stuff will happen. So we were closing up, which is a very stupid thing to do. We had our cameras put up and we were getting down from the deer stand. And I noticed the light coming over Adam's shoulder in the deer stand. It went down into a field and swept across a seven acre field into the timber and it went out. And then the vantage point, the source, was over that timber, and the light went across the field and came right up to the bottom of the deer stand where Adam and I were getting ready to get out of. And it, it just more or less said to us, like, I know exactly where you guys are. And the minute it started coming up, got to the bottom of the deer stand, the light just went out. And that was it. And there again, Ted was in another field. He should have seen this from his location. He, he had no idea this was going on with us he couldn't see anything so you know you're you're dealing with an intelligence and we've proved it so many times that uh it's just phenomenal you yeah. know and, and how do you explain that
1: but we've we've also um explored a lot on people that have been abducted and people that have had close encounters with orbs and they always come away with some sort of sickness or ailment uh, uh, shortly afterwards. Right. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these abductees that we've talked to, they all have some medical issues with them uh, or went through a period where they had some physical, uh, you know, trauma or just weird diseases that popped out of nowhere. What was the one Louis that uh, the, the famous Hash- one, <clears throat>
0: I think it was Hashimoto's.
1: That's Hashimoto's. What,
0: uh, Colin Kelleher. Yeah. Just weird autoimmune diseases that, you know, basically nobody would ever heard of. And uh, these people are getting diagnosed with it, kind of like a macular cyst. Like, who do you know that's ever had one of those? So yeah. they seem to spur on weird things that normally wouldn't form. And, I mean, I if know. it is microwaves, that makes a lot of sense.
2: Right. And, and you know, it just goes on and on into so many realms. And and I would just like to urge people to go to, you can just do Google my name or my YouTube channel. It's free. I've got several movies, everything in Marley, Ted's early work. I got several movies up there free. You can go to and view. And uh, I have a very great. After Ted passed away, I did an interview. Jock Valle did a tribute to Ted, and Ted and Jock speaks about his time in Marley. And one particular instant instance he recounts is when Jock stayed with us out there. And and we also had another guest. Some of the people that dropped in with us, Douglas Trumbull was staying with us. And you know, Douglas Trumbull is a special effects master. uh, 2001 space odyssey brainstorm uh you know and on and on uh close encounters but douglas stayed he was very much making camera equipment high-tech stuff to try to catch you know the phenomena and douglas was out there with us and jock was out there and we had an old cabin on the on marley out there and it was raining the particular evening and the property owner was out there and douglas wanted to put this High-tech piece of equipment in the cabin facing the north window. And uh, and this thing was, I bet the whole configuration probably weighed 75, 80 pounds on a heavy tripod. Put it in the cabin at the north window, locked it down. And we left that night. This was going to run all night. We left the cabin. The property owner locked the door, and the property owner doesn't live there on that, where we were staying. He left. The next morning we go in and Jacques Valet talks about this in this tribute to Ted. It's so great to hear the man talk about his time in Marley. And uh, he tells about how this, the next morning we go to go in this cabin and Douglas goes in to check his camera equipment. And he comes back out towards us before we could get in the door. And he, he more or less accused somebody. He said, he said, who's in this room. He used a little bit more graphic language than this, but he said, Who's screwing with me right now? And and screwed around with this camera. And we said, "Well, why?" And he said, "Well, come in here." And we went in. And Jock talks about how this heavy piece, heavy piece of camera equipment on this tripod was turned thirty degrees away from the window, facing the wall. Now, how that's, do you explain that? Yeah, you know, that's
1: pretty heavy equipment, right? Yeah. 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 I mean,
2: and it's not, not going wind- to move on its own in a locked cabin, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's so similar to the stuff I will tell you that Bigelow experienced and told us what went on at Skinwalker. You know, they set up high speed cameras and this sounds boring as as hell to the, to a novice, but they set up high speed cameras on a tabletop with a, a set of keys. Now it's, well, why would they do that? But they actually had three high speed cameras on a set of keys on this table at Skinwalker. And here, what, what it had occurred was within these three cameras, this set of keys would go from point A, B, C around the table and not be caught moving on high-speed cameras. Now, the only way they could explain that was this is dimensionally based. This actually morphed it, like it went through a, a portal. It reappeared you know, in another location. Because if it had moved in our realm, these cameras would have well caught this action. But it just would show up point A, B, and C, and back and forth like that. Now, how do you explain that? So,
0: I've even seen trail cam footage from Skinwalker Ranch where, you know, they're motion activated. Anything goes near it, it goes off. So they right. have the reel. And it was, it was focused at like the base of a tree, and it was in the snow. So the snow right. is perfectly undisturbed, and it's like five frames like that. All of a sudden, there's like a a wolf footprint, and but there's no sign of the animal that made it. The print just came out of nowhere, but there was no flesh or mass that was associated with the print. And as they run the reel, you could see it, it's like nothing, 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 and then a print. Well, how does that happen? (laughs) That's That's and
2: you know, that's so often like we had the property owner would send us imagery and we'd check it when we were could get out there, but on like in the On a winter morning, you know, he had a pond and real thin ice, real just with a light coat of snow on it. And he found 13 inch diameter, three toed tracks going, starting going across this pond and terminating in the center of the pond. Now, that amount of mass there and weight to, you know, 13 inch track, three toed, what could do that? When the property owner went to step on the ice, he broke through with his weight. So, how do you lay down how does anything with that man, unless dimensionally this stuff was in a process of morphing in and out, you know? Uh, but it, it goes on and on like that the high strangeness. Uh, no explanations, you know, uh, but, but that's what we dealt with.
1: What are some of the best lessons that you've learned from Ted Phillips?
2: It's, I'll tell you, it's what I've learned from Ted is to, so many researchers like to go in and uh, interject things in, a, in an area. And I always, I love his approach. Just you're there to monitor. Uh, don't bring in any more, interject any more, anything else foreign in the area than what is there. and And go from that point of view. And the high strangeness, and it goes on to that there's an intelligence there that you're dealing with. And, you know, my first trip there to Marley, we slept upstairs in in an area for the team. They had like a bedroom office combination, the kitchen below. And, um, but when we were sleeping up there, Ted told me of the phenomenon about it. And I, I heard Ted in the beginning and I didn't pay too much attention to it. And, um, and anything Ted Phillips ever said, you better take as gospel because I mean, he was the real artifact. And, but one evening, I was up there, and, and we didn't go out. Typically, we go out, unlike, and so many ufologists know, and they're in the paranormal world, that, that usually 12 a.m. is not the bewitching hour. It tends to be 3 a.m. more than 12, but but we usually go out at 3 a.m., sometimes earlier, and one particular morning, we just slept in, and and I remember it was about I three, four in the morning and, uh, something shook me and woke me up. And I just had this overwhelming sense of euphoria, joy. And I I just thought I was going to go out on the deck and see the mothership. I mean, I, I can't describe that something physically shook me, woke me up. And I just had this feeling of euphoria. I ran out on the deck, just, it, then it went to depression. Almost. There was nothing there, nothing. And
1: bummed out. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And so I go in and made a very unwise move. One thing you didn't want to do, though, is wake Ted Phillips in the morning if he was sleeping the few times he did sleep. And I woke Ted and I explained to Ted what happened and looking for some kind of substantial response, something, you know, scientific. And, and Ted just looked at me and he said, well, Tom, welcome to Marley, he said. so
1: so this thing, was my
2: first experience.
1: This thing drew you out of bed like you were euphoric the whole time from leaving your room to going outside.
2: Yeah, it physically shook me. I mean, I woke up, I felt something shake, like somebody grabbed my arm and was shaking me. Right, and there was nothing there, and I just had this euphoria. I mean, if I'd have seen the mothership right there, which I I thought I was going to go out and make contacters. I mean, I and that's not to say there wasn't something there. Right. I, I really believe there was. Um, but you know, it wasn't visual. Um, we didn't have our equipment up and running that particular time, uh, which I will tell you, uh, doing the show with Ben Henson and UFO witness, uh, Ben brought into the, the play, some state of the art equipment. Uh, one thing that I felt was indispensable had we had that in Marley was his top grade thermal imaging equipment that he had. And, uh, you know when we did the show out there, he imaged uh, when we were up in the one deer stand out there, and Ben told me he said, "Oh, I got something here." He said, "I don't know if this was a small animal or something, Tom." And I, I told Ben, I from experience with light balls, I said, "No, that's not an, an animal." I said, "That's spherical, Ben. That's and it's off the ground, uh, and for all intents and purposes, it looked like a light ball." But now I had uh, night vision equipment. I couldn't see it with night vision. I couldn't see it with my naked eye. The thermal imaging equipment picked us up, and as it moved across, and as he was zeroing in, zooming in on this thing, his piece of equipment just shut down. It just went completely dead. And I told Ben, several thousand dollar piece of state of the equipment he had there, uh, which he sells by the way, some of that equipment. I said, "Does it have a habit of doing this, Ben?" And Ben said, "It's never done this. No." He said, I don't understand. And about that time, it came back on, and he caught a brief glimpse of this again on the imagery. And then he, we were in radio contact with the producer and other people on the ground. Um, Melissa Tittle was there as co-host. They ran on the ground. And he directed them to the location. And about the time they got there, this thing blinked out. Now they couldn't see it at all. Uh, but I, in the back of my mind, I was thinking. How often in the past, if we had that thermal imaging unit, could we have perceived this? How often was this stuff around us in that realm that we couldn't perceive without that piece of equipment? Yeah. So, you know, when we go back, I very much always want to have a piece of equipment like that because it can start, you know, this stuff may kick off in that mode and then go visual. Uh, So, you know.
1: Even the oh. newest equipment that they had on the Nimitz, that's what got them to spot the Tic Tac yes. um, activity, right? For like two weeks. And right. it because it was new equipment. So as equipment, uh, even Louis was mentioning uh, the gentleman uh, that we had on with uh, Caroline Corey that made that. Uh,
0: yeah, David Mason. David Mason. Ah, oh, man,
1: I'm so bad with names. But uh, yeah, David Mason's like, you know, just the ingenuity that these people have are coming up with ideas of like how to spot these things on different spectrums. Now, when we're talking about the radiation that is coming from this Morley woods, is it coming from the ground? Is it coming from above? Do you think,
2: you know, here again, I, we more, or less we believe it's coming down. Uh, it's coming. It's not. It's source. Isn't the ground. Okay. We feel that what we dealt with was coming out of the sky. And, uh, in everything that we dealt with, we just believed that. Right. Uh, so, And again, uh, you know, when we were out there filming and the, my piece of equipment, I actually, I got a stronger reading as I raised my arm with it. And if I would go down to, towards the ground, it would tend to go down a couple degrees in intensity. So I very much think now what we experienced was coming from, we was sky-based are dimensionally based over us. So, uh, But now that's not to say, you know, a Skinwalker. It seems at times to be coming from everywhere, you right. know? So
0: when we interviewed Thomas Winters in from Skinwalker Ranch, she basically told us the same thing, that at a certain point in the sky, I forget if it was a couple hundred feet or 1,400 sticks out in my mind for some reason, but a lot of their experiments were to put weather balloons with instrumentation on it, to be able to get it up into that zone because you know the closer they would get to it, that's where the anomalous things seem to happen. So
2: right very right.
0: similarly, they believe the source to be in the sky as well. Now, even though they get readings from the ground, the, the strongest ones tend to be uh kind of mid-sky sort of thing.
2: Yeah, and I will tell you that uh the technology of the day, had we had the drone technology that they have now. Ted was so far ahead of his time in that realm, too. And I will tell you. Ted was taking model airplanes and helicopters, trying to attach cameras to them because he always envisioned his dream was when we seen a light source come on, he was going to fly this right into this portal and see what he could get. And if he could make it there now, had we had the drone technology that you, know, that you have now,
0: yeah.
2: it could have well been done, you know, but, but there again, you have to realize this stuff, the intelligence you're dealing with, would it have let us do this? You know, maybe not. Yeah. Cause uh, it controlled us. We didn't control Ted always called Marley his living laboratory. And by the end, and even Jacques valet and others had said that he felt that we were in its living laboratory. You know, it was right. monitoring, exploring, experimenting with us. And as Ted said so much, you know, he, he loved the structured craft, the nuts and bolts stuff, the tonnage, And like he said, when our technology increased, it it went into the light ball arena. You know, the light balls are so prevalent now. And he felt like they lowered their risk factors. Our technology increased. You know, they lowered their risk factor in more like a ROV using natural elements, light being, you know, or whatever. And uh, if you have a structured craft, you can prove it. If you have a light ball, when it's there, it's there. When it's gone, you got nothing. you got no residue, usually. There has been cases where there's been residue, but uh, but you know more or less that's what he that's the one thing he learned over the years that it the intelligence lowers its risk for, it, it's constantly adapting it the intelligence uh, it's working you out there and you just can't get ahead of it and as you've seen on Skinwalker there was a gentleman there in their conference room that told them in that one you know episode and I loved that episode where he said. You people think you're in control of this and you're on top of it. He said, let me tell you, it's, it's controlling you. It's working you. Yeah. So, uh, and we, that's exactly what we found to be true.
1: Have you found um, any, like, because I've asked this before, but to some other guests, but like spiritual people, do they have a different effect in that area? Like, are they more open, receptive to the weird phenomenon?
2: I, I will tell you that. And this is, an, again, in a realm where ufologists, if you go here, they'll throw rocks at you, I know. and uh, But we experience things ourselves. And I will tell you that the older individuals, witnesses, some of them around Marley, uh, the more religious people, some of them, they, and most of the people, for whatever reason, seem to have the knack. They can perceive this stuff before it's going to start. Now, some of the older people, they'll go in their house, they'll lock the doors, they'll pull the shades down. They view it as being demonic, and they won't go outside when they think this stuff is going to start. Now, over the years, there's other individuals, I will tell you, in the area back in the 20s. They used to go to this location with picnic tables and folding chairs and use it as a source of entertainment sometime and watch the light bulbs. And one instant there's one field that they call it the, the twinkle lights where the whole field it looks like fireflies. There's little tiny lights come up from the ground and cover the whole field and just blink all night long. And uh, uh so they used to use it some individuals as entertainment. But yes, uh some individuals have felt and it's affected some people there again. Um uh, in a I will, you know, you can just some aspects of it is we truly feel it is evil and there is that that presence at times
1: hmm. like you, it's palpable like you can feel it
2: yes oh yeah. yeah okay yeah yeah ben i will tell you and they might i don't know how much they want this to be known but ben and melissa they were out there uh and marley they got shook a couple times and uh and one instance where melissa was out there we were out there filming and and all of a sudden, you know, you have all the insect noise and she, you can see this on the episode. I mean, all of a sudden, and I have hearing problems myself. Uh, and she was the first one to, to key in on this. I mean, all of a sudden from insect noise and your sounds of the night and everything, it just went dead silence. I mean, you could, you could almost hear yourself breathe Yeah. and you could feel. And I mean, they were actually shook up. They felt this and they were looking at each other and you get to the point where you don't know what's going to happen then, you know?
1: You're like, we're going in for a ride boys. Hang on, grab your coats. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Louis, do you have any final questions for our guest today?
0: No, I just want to send a big thanks out to uh, our guest today, Thomas Ferrario. Uh, Cast member and host of the new show, uh, UFO Witness, which we highly recommend. Um, and again, thank you for your years and years of dedication. If it wasn't for guys like you in this movement, yeah. you know, 20 years ago, it wouldn't have the kind of momentum that it has now. And continuing forward, you know, the stuff you're figuring out uh, is helping us understand how crazy this phenomenon really is. And uh, the fact that it really doesn't have a limit, you know, it's not just limited to nuts and bolts or lights. It's at the quantum level. And uh, yeah, continue doing what you're doing. We really enjoy what you guys are on to. And we hope to have you back again one day soon. Oh, well,
2: thank you so much. And I just encourage anybody to go to my YouTube channel. You can see about Ted Phyllis, Marley Woods, everything. There's movies there for free and see what went on.